This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. of the United Nations, we present one of America's top spine tinglers, a radio rebroadcast of a program dedicated to the mysterious, the unusual, and sometimes the supernatural, a program of suspense. The producer of suspense asks you to almost believe that the following is true. Very well. Standing beside me, surrounded by two guards, is a man who in a few short hours is to be put to death in the electric chair. His last request to the warden was that he be allowed to speak on this program and reveal what he calls some startling information. The warden naturally turned to us and we at once complied, anxious at all times to do anything, however strange, that will hold our listeners in suspense. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm speaking correctly. Yes, right here, sir. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, this broadcast will never be completed. I'm going to tell you a story. This story involves a number of famous and influential people here as well as abroad. These people have received warning from me, and I'm sure all of them are making it a point to listen to me now. I shall not name these great, these rich, these influential gentlemen until my story is over. They will recognize the story. They will remember me. They will take the necessary steps for my reprieve. I shall expect a full pardon and safe conduct to a neutral country. These are my terms. I shall expect word of this to be brought to this studio during this broadcast. But as I have warned you, this broadcast will never be finished. You will never hear those names. It is certain my price will be paid. I am presently under sentence of death for my activities in the matter of refueling German submarines in the Caribbean. My full confession has been reproduced in the popular press. You have read it and you know the details. It is the least ingenious of my exploits and my first failure. So much for it. The story I shall tell you tonight occurred many years ago, but concerns, as I have said, many now living. It will interest you, I hope. I know it will interest them. Very well, then. Uh, on the 3rd of June, 1925, in Liverpool, a man who gave his name as Monsieur Louis Caratel asked to see Mr. James Bland, the superintendent of the London and West Coast Railway. He was a small man, this Caratel, middle-aged, darkened, with a stoop so pronounced that it suggested some deformity of the spine. He was accompanied by a friend, a man of imposing physique, who from his swarthy complexion was probably either a Spaniard or a South American. It turned out later that his name was Gomez. One peculiarity was observed in him. He carried in his left hand, fastened to his wrist by a strap, a small leather dispatch case. No importance was attached to this fact at the time, but later events endowed it with much significance. Monsieur Caratel was shown to Mr. Bland's office while his companion remained outside. How do you do, monsieur? My name is Louis Caratel. Yes, sir. What can I do for you? I have just arrived from Central America this afternoon. It is extremely urgent that I reach Paris without a moment's delay. Paris, eh? Hmm. It's too bad. Just missed the London Express. I am not interested in the London Express. Could you provide me with a special train? Yes, I think that could be arranged. Oh? It's quite an expensive proposition. Uh, money is of a small importance, monsieur. Time is everything. If you can arrange a special for me in a hurry, you may make your own terms. Very well. Mr. Hood. Will you step over here a moment, please? Yes, Mr. Bland. Uh, Mr. Hood, uh, here's our 
Classic manager, Mr. Carrickell. Hmm. Hood, I want you to arrange a special for him. He's going to Paris. How's the line? Can you fix him up in a hurry? Why, yes, I believe so, Mr. Bland. The line is clear through Manchester, and engine 247 at the Rochdale is on the tracks now. It could be ready, say, in 15 minutes. Good. Who's available for the trip? Uh, engineer Smith, sir. And I can put James McPherson on as conductor. Well, there you are, Mr. Carrickell. Simple as that. Tend to everything right away, will you, Hood? Yes, sir. Uh, these men, uh, Mrs. Smith and... Uh, uh, Mc McPherson? Uh, McPherson. Are they trustworthy? Oh, yes. Of course. McPherson's been with the company for years, and I'm sure Smith, although new, is an expert engineer. Well, thank you, monsieur. I am deeply indebted. You have been most considerate. At 4.31 exactly by the station clock, the special train with Caratel and Gomez steamed out of the Liverpool station. The line at that time was clear and there should have been no stoppage between Manchester. At a quarter after six, considerable surprise and some consternation was caused among the officials at Liverpool by the receipt of a wire from Manchester to say that the special had not yet arrived. An inquiry directed at once to St. Helens, which is a third of the way between the two cities, elicited the following reply. To James Bland, Superintendent, Liverpool. Special passed here at 4.52. Well up to time. Dowser, St. Helens. The wire was received at 6.40. At 6.50, a second message was received from Manchester. No sign of special was advised by you. And then, ten minutes later, a third, more bewildering. Presume some mistake is proposed running of special. Local train from St. Helens, time to follow it, has just arrived and has seen nothing of it. Kindly wire advices. Manchester. The matter was assuming a most amazing aspect. Although in some respects the last telegram was a relief to the authorities at Liverpool. If an accident had occurred to the special, it seemed hardly possible that the local train could have passed down the same line without observing it. And yet, what was the alternative? Where could the train be? A telegram was dispatched to each of the stations between St. Helens and Manchester, and the superintendent and his traffic manager waited in the utmost suspense at the instrument for the series of replies. The answers came back in the order of questions, which was the order of the stations, beginning at St. Helens. Special passed here, five o'clock, Collins Green. Special passed here, six past five, Earl Stout. Special passed here, five ten, Newton. Special passed here, 5.20, Kenyon Junction. No special train is passed here, Barton Moss. Hood, this is unique in my 30 years of experience. I can't understand it, Mr. Bland. The special has gone wrong between Kenyon Junction and Barton Moss. And yet there's no siding between the two stations. Special must have run off the rails, jumped the track. But how could the 450 parliamentary pass over the same line without seeing it? There's no alternative, Hood. Absolutely must be so. Possibly the local may have observed something which may throw sunlight on the matter. We'll wire to Manchester for more information and Kenyon Junction with instructions that the line be examined intently as far as Barton Moss. <laughs> answer from Manchester came within a few minutes. No news of missing special. Driver and guard of local train positive no accident between Kenyon Junction and Barton Moss. Line quite clear and no sign of anything unusual. Manchester. This is lunacy hood. Does a train vanish into thin air in England in broad daylight? The thing's preposterous. An engine, a tender, car, five human beings, and all lost on a straight line of railway. It's impossible. A month elapsed, during which both the police and the company prosecuted their inquiries without the slightest success. Mr. Bland, at the end of this period, offered his resignation. It was accepted. The affair remained unsolved. A reward was offered and a pardon promised in case of crime, but they were both unclaimed. Every day the public opened their papers with the conviction that so grotesque a mystery would at last be solved, but week after week passed by and a solution remained as far off as ever. 
Then a new and most unexpected incident occurred. This was nothing less than the receipt by Mrs. McPherson of a letter from her husband, James McPherson, who had been conductor of the missing train. The letter, which was dated July 5, 1925, was posted from Mozambique, Portuguese East Africa, and came to hand upon the July 14th. My dear wife, I've been thinking a great deal, and I find it very hard to give you up. I try to fight against it, but it will always come back to me. I send you some money, which will change into 20 English pounds. This should be enough to bring you here. Things are very difficult with me at present, and I'm not very happy, finding it so hard to give you up. So no more at present. From your loving husband, James McPherson. For a time, it was confidently anticipated that the letter would lead to the clearing up of the whole incident. As directed, Mrs. McPherson sailed to Portuguese East Africa. She stayed in Mozambique for some time, but heard nothing from the missing man. Finally, she returned to Liverpool, and so the matter stood. And has continued to stand right up to the present moment. Incredible as it may seem, nothing has transpired during those 18 years which has shed the least light upon the extraordinary disappearance of this special train which contained Monsieur Caratel and his companion, Mr. Gomez, and McPherson, the conductor, Smith, the engineer, the fireman named Slater. And now, after all this time, I shall clear up the entire affair. And unless I hear from those so highly respectable gentlemen who were my employers and who are completely implicated in the crime, unless I hear from them before I'm finished, their names will be revealed on this broadcast. Take final warning, gentlemen. You know I mean what I say. If you are smart, you are at this moment arranging my reprieve. I must remind you, time is short. You have just uh, six minutes. <laughs> now, for the interest of my other listeners, I shall resume the story of the lost special. In a word... There was a famous trial in Paris in the year 1925, perhaps you recall it, in connection with a monstrous scandal, scandal in politics and finance. How monstrous that scandal was can never be known except by such confidential agents as myself. At stake were the honor and careers of many of the chief men of Europe and the United States. A secret committee was formed to manage the business. Some subscribed to the committee who hardly understood what were its objects, but others understood very well they can rely upon it that I have not forgotten their names. Do you think I could forget your names, gentlemen? You uh, pillars of the community, great, rich, respected, honorable men. Hmm? Do you remember that day in May 1925? The fashionable country club, remember? And the golf game that was played there that spring morning? Ladies and gentlemen, that was the strangest golf game played in the history of this world. Oh, scratch. Look at that drive. I've been playing badly all morning. <laughs> you topped it, Senator. Perhaps you're a little nervous. I beg your pardon? Yeah, I join your game. Uh, well, I'm not sure... Not sure should... of what? Of me? <laughs> I promise you, gentlemen, you can be very sure of me. I'm the man you're supposed to meet. The distinguished congressman here can vouch for me. Yeah, he's the one, all right. Yes. This is the Lerniak. Uh, Mr. Delaniac, may I present uh, the... My name is not really Delaniac, gentlemen, but I am sure that bothers you no less than it does me. Besides, there is no need for introductions. I know everyone present by sight and by reputation. My drive, I believe. Thank you. Not so good. 200 and, uh, what, about 50 yards. <laughs> I hope I'm not going to continue in this way. You're, you're sure we can talk safely here, Frank? Uh, please set your mind at ease. We shan't be overheard in the middle of a golf course. Mm -hmm. There is no convenient hiding place here for dictaphones, even in the rough, where I notice you're playing the greater part of your game, Senator. You must be nervous this morning. I know, but I don't like it. I don't like it at all. Well, it's, it's not the superlative it's... course you are accustomed to on your own enormous uh, California estate, sir, but it's going to have to serve our particular purpose. Oh, by the way, let me compliment you on the way you've had your syndicate of newspapers handle the recent strike situation and the editorial which appeared under your own signature this I morning. 
Yes, well calculated to stir up please, trouble please, with the uh, labor. Let's get on with our business. We... Yes, I, uh, uh, Mr. Delignac... At your service, sir. And may I suggest we continue our game? I know the absence of caddies is an inconvenience. Uh, Mr. Delignac... Certainly. In June, a month from now in Paris, there will be a most uh, important trial. Ah, yes. During its progress... Uh, pardon me, are you referring to the Sarinsky trial? Oh. Yes. Uh, I... You know about it, then? Well, certain interesting details. I know something of it. It's my business, after all, to keep myself informed about these matters. It is not for nothing that I am known as the most... Then let me continue, please. This trial, yes. I'm speaking in the utmost confidence, you understand. Uh, this trial could, if certain evidence were introduced, could have a very serious effect upon the prestige and standing of some most important men. I'm sure In fact, it. it could even... You're shivering, Senator. You find it cold out uh, here? No. No, no, get on with it, Frank. Get to the point. For heaven's sake, please. The evidence which one man could bring to the trial could ruin these men. Without it, the trial will collapse for want of facts. Mm -hmm. But if this one man arrives in yeah, Paris, uh, I... Quite evidently, you do not wish him to arrive in Paris. No. Uh, gentlemen, you have come to the man. This uh, sounds indeed like the sort of thing which no one in the world can manage with such skill and success as myself. I must admit, however, that my services come rather high. Well, do... It's only natural, since there is only the one... The money makes no difference. We have formed a group, it. a committee, and we have the command of an unlimited amount of money. Absolutely ah, unlimited, well, you hear. We will name people in places now. Who is the gentleman whose appearance in Paris would uh, cause such regrettable embarrassment? His name is Caratal, Louis ah, Caratal. He knows everything. He has papers, yes, documents, yes, I, all I the understand. evidence. Where we... is this Monsieur Caratal uh, at present? Well, he's sailing from somewhere in Central America Central within America. the next few days. Uh, that much we know. Good, good. Central America. I have an excellent man down there in Central America. This Caratel, uh, you know anything about him, uh, person, his personal well, habits? Well, uh, no, very little. He's a small man, dark. Uh, he yes. has a bodyguard, a great big bruiser named uh, Lopez. Let Gomez me see, from Central like America, that would be the Americano Tropicana. No, those are my ships. You trips uh, all commence at Liverpool, mm. I believe. Uh, that's where the ships dock and our famous trial is to begin in three weeks. That would mean that Monsieur Caratel would go directly to London, and I imagine that once there he would be heavily guarded, since it can be no surprise to him that you gentlemen are not without uh, connections in the British uh, capital. Uh, that's good, clean you thinking. see, this is not so simple as some of my other exploits, a simple assassination. Huh? Uh, there's your ball, sir. You're playing a Dunlop 38, aren't you? Huh? Uh. Oh, yes, yes, to be sure, yes. <laughs> Quite. As I said, a simple assassination, the usual clumsy job will not do here. The documents might, after all, be found. The bodyguard might survive somehow, and then we have accomplished nothing, not so. Uh, yes, of course. Are you going to play? Yes, yes, of course, of course. Topped it again, I'm afraid. <laughs> Shall we proceed? I already have three plans in my head, gentlemen. I have a plan for nailing him at the Central American port from which he embarks. I have a plan for his disposal aboard the ship. But in each of these cases, I, Delaniac, will be unable to be present. So there is the chance of failure. <clears throat> I will think of a third plan, gentlemen. I shall sail immediately to Liverpool on my way there, sitting on the deck in the May sunshine. I shall conceive my third plan. It must be something special. Something very special. <laughs> there I am. Is this your famous water hazard? Well, I think a number seven iron will do it. And thus I undertook to bring about the complete destruction of Monsieur Caratelli's bodyguard companion Gomez and his documents. Plan one was already out the window as I found out the next day. Belerniak. White Sulphur Springs, Virginia. Baby Lou, unable sleep last few nights, have sent him to visit Aunt Henriette. Will rejoin him on 21st. Love, Jenny. Uh, this telegram from Matagalpa conveyed to me the information that Caratil, possibly sensing danger, had moved from his hotel and gone to stay with friends until his ship sailed. So it was impossible to carry out the idea of the fire in the hotel. His ship leaving on the 21st was the Henriette. On my fourth day at sea, I heard from her. Delanac, Barrancaria. Ship-to-ship communication from Henriette, Tropicana Line. Presented Grace your box of chocolates. Louise has given up candy for Lent. Grace still wants us all together for 29th birthday party. 
will be really special. Ralph. This meant that poison had been given to Gomez, the bodyguard, in an effort to get him at least out of the way. He'd been unable to succumb to it. He'd thrown off the effects, and it's evidenced by the report that we would all be together on the 29th. Now, Caratel had refused to eat the food containing the poison. So much for plan two, which was not worthy of me anyway, since there was always the possibility of the bodies being found in the ocean. The man Gomez was carrying the documents in a dispatch case strapped to his wrist, and I must tell you something now. I was glad, glad, mind you, that we had failed so far, for the plan I had conceived on the night I arrived in Liverpool was so magnificent, so absolutely unprecedented in the annals of crime that I owed it to myself, to my employers, and to history to carry it through. The inspiration came from the words in the code telegram which indicated that Cartel would arrive uh, in London and hire a special train there to convey him uh, from Liverpool. My British agent, Mr. Moore, and I contrived to buy over several officials of the railway. Now, here begins the story. First, the division head who helped us employ James McPherson, whom we contrived to be the conductor of any special train we designated. Then further, at a sum that would make them independent for life, we bought over an engine driver named Oswald Smith and the fireman John Slater. These men we arranged with the division head would be assigned to whatever special train was hired by Caratel. On the afternoon of June 3rd, as I was sitting in my room at the inn at Barton Moss, the call I had been awaiting came through. It was McPherson reporting. Hello, Mr. Delaniac. We shall be leaving in a few minutes. Mm. He's hired the special. Good. Smith will be engine driver and Slater fireman. And, of course, I'll be in charge. What about Moore? Will he be aboard? Afraid not, sir. He gave them quite a story about having to reach his sick wife and all. But Caratal would have none of it. You said, though, sir, that it didn't matter. It, it does not matter. What uh, time will you pass Kenyon Junction? Mm. Let me see, sir. If we leave the next few minutes, we should be there at 510. 510. It's a 49-minute run, sir. 49 minutes. I, I, I can make it, but delay all you can before you start. Uh, yes, sir. I guess it's all up to you from now on. Best of luck, sir. Oh, uh, here they come, sir. Goodbye. <laughs> Everything had been prepared for days before, and only the finishing touches were needed. The sidetrack, just before Borton Moss, leading to the abandoned Hartsey's Mine, had once joined the main line, but it had been disconnected when the mine had been worked out some years before. We had only to replace a few rails to connect it once more. With my small but competent band of workers, we had everything ready well before the special arrived. When it did arrive, it ran off upon the small sideline so easily that the jolting of the switch points appears to have been entirely unnoticed by the two travelers. So, now I have our special train upon the small line which leads, or rather used to lead, to the abandoned mine. You will ask how it is that no one saw the train upon this unused line. I answer that along its entire length it runs through a deep cutting and that unless someone had been on the edge of that cutting, he could not have seen it. There was someone on the edge of that cutting. I was there. And now I will tell you what I saw. The moment the train was fairly on the sideline, Smith slowed down the engine, and then having turned it on full speed ahead, he and McPherson with Slater, the fireman, sprang off before it was too late. It may be that was this slowing down which first attracted the attention of the travelers, but the train was running at top speed before their heads appeared at the open window. Makes me smile to think how bewildered they must have been. What a catch must have come to their breath as it flashed upon them, that it was not Manchester that was awaiting them, but death. The train was now running at frantic speed, rolling and rocking over the rough and rusty line while the wheels made a frightful screaming sound on the corroded surface. I was close to them and could see their faces. Caratel was praying, I think. There was something like a rosary dangling out of his hand. The other Gomez roared like a bull, but was drowned out by the incredible noise of the train. He saw me standing on the bank. When he realized he couldn't be heard, he beckoned to me like a madman. 
tearing at his wrist and hurling the dispatch box out of the window in my direction. Of course, his meaning was obvious. Here was the evidence that they would promise to be silent if their lives were spared. Would have been very agreeable if it could have been done so, but business is business. Besides, the train was now so much beyond our control as it was He ceased his howling and gesturing when the train rattled around the curve and they saw the black mouth of the mine yawning before them. They were struck silent by what they saw, and yet they could not withdraw their heads. The sight seemed to have paralyzed them. I had wondered how the train running at a great speed would take the pit, and I was much interested in watching it. One of my colleagues who had joined me there thought it actually would jump it, and indeed it was not very far from doing so. It leaped into the air and seemed to hang suspended for a moment. The funnel flew off into the air and then the van, the car and the engine were all smashed up into one jumble, which choked the mouth of the great pit and something gave way in the middle and the whole mass of iron coal fittings, wheels, woodwork and cushions crumbled together and crashed into the mine. muddy water standing in the bottom of the pit 200 feet below responded to the intense heat of the engine boilers. It hissed loudly and blew great bubbles of black mire into the air. At the same time, the walls of the pit loosened by the impact of the train as it struck the opposite side, gave way, and a mighty avalanche of rock and dirt thundered down upon the wreckage of the train as it settled with a low, hissing sigh was covered forever by the mud and mire. The vapor hanging in the air shredded off into thin, small wisps, and all was quiet again in the Hartsey's mine. <laughs> and now, having carried out our plan so successfully, it remained only to leave no trace behind us. Our little band of workers at the other end had already ripped up the rails and disconnected the sideline, replacing everything as it had been before. We were equally busy at the mine. The lines which led to it were torn up and taken away. Then, without flurry but without delay, we all made our way out of the country, most of us to Paris, my English agent, to Manchester and Macpherson to East Africa. A word in passing about Macpherson, who was foolish enough to write to his wife and tell her to meet him in Mozambique. And naturally, we took steps to ensure that this meeting would never come about. I have sometimes thought it would be a kindness to write to Mrs. Macpherson and to assure her that there is no the impediment to her marrying again. <laughs> but of the lost special, let the English papers of that date tell how thoroughly we had done our work and how completely we had thrown the cleverest of their detectives off our track. You will remember that Gomez threw his bag of papers out of the window, and I need not say that I secured that bag and brought them to my employers. It may interest my employers now, however, to learn that out of that bag, I took one or two little papers as a souvenir of that occasion. I had no wish to read the information obtained by these papers, but it is now, oh, it's less than a minute before my broadcast is over. And I have received no word is the final hour. I see at the other end of the studio the engineer waving his hands at me that my time is almost up. Well, I gave you warning. You had your chance, gentlemen. Very well. Now I reveal your names. And the first name I reveal is that of Charles Foster. Ladies and gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen, they're trying murder. I want you to hear these names quickly. I know you will avenge me. The names are... Names. Kalanya, Kalanya, can you hear me? Are you all right? Hey, Bill, play something quick. Will you theme curtain music, anything? Thank you.
so closes the last special by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, starring Orson Welles. Tonight's tale of suspense. This rebroadcast of suspense was produced in the United States of America. A new program, a great program. The Moore Duranty Show is coming to CBS. Tune in every Friday at 10 p.m. Eastern Wartime, beginning tomorrow night, for Laughs with Jimmy Duranty and Gary Moore, and music with Georgia Gibbs and Roy Bargie's Orchestra over most of these same stations. Suspense. This is the man in black, here again to introduce Columbia's program, Suspense. With us again, as star, is Mr. Orson Welles, in the third of four successive appearances for the Suspense audience. And sharing honors with Mr. Wells this evening is a lovely and distinguished Hollywood leading lady, Miss Geraldine Fitzgerald. Our play tonight is from a short story by Agatha Christie. And so with Philomel Cottage and with the performances of Geraldine Fitzgerald as Alex Martin and of Orson Wells as her devoted husband, Gerald, we again hope to keep you in suspense. reading the sign over the gate. What does Philomel mean? Are you joking? No, really. Are <laughs> you little cockney? You've been here for three weeks and you still don't know. Philomel is another name for the bird that's supposed to sing only for lovers. You've been hearing it every twilight. Oh, Nightingale. Of course. That sign, Philomel Cottage, is the main reason I wanted this place for us. Glad you bought it. Gerald, this was a 50-50 investment and you know it. Uh. Fifty-fifty, a thousand pounds from me and two from you. What else could we do? You couldn't touch any more of your capital at the time, and... Well, when you find a country cottage that combines old-world charm with new-world plumbing, you want to grab it. And... <laughs> and we did have to have the place, didn't we? Yes, we did. I've often wondered if you went a bit lonely. Lonely? With you? I mean, well, after living the city all your life, pretty much to ourselves, you know. Two miles from the nearest neighbor. From the nearest eavesdropper, you mean. Hmm. What an utterly hopeless romantic I met. <laughs> well, you can't get out of it now. No. Oh, Gerald, do you know what day today is? Today? It's the 13th. It's our anniversary, darling. We've known each other exactly a month. No, exactly 30 days. <laughs> oh, Gerald, really now? No, really. What is it, dear? Do you have the pain again? No. Just a little indigestion, I think. There. Do you want me to get you your pillow? No, 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 no. Well, yes. 11.25. Better get on to the village. How to get that camera equipment. And the human timetable walks through the garden gate. My dear, there's nothing wrong with system, even on a honeymoon. Sooner I go, sooner I get back. Oh, come on, Gerald. Forget your old photography. Why don't you stay and do some gardening? It'll be good for you. Better for old George. He gets paid for it. He's not due again until Saturday. The place will go to rack and ruin. Over my dead body. Goodbye, dear. Don't walk too fast, dear. Remember the last time. Be careful, darling. Be careful. It had just slipped out. Be careful. 
Alex Martin swinging there on the garden gate, smiling out of happiness across a part of England that was as remote and placid as any you'd care to find, wondered why she'd said such a ridiculous thing. If this were London, say, that would have... London. And slowly the smile fell away. She knew then that the memory of that last week in London had never really been far from her mind. That and that last talk with Dick on the top deck of the bus crossing Trafalgar Square. She'd never seen him like that before. Gerald Martin. I tell you, Alex, the man's a perfect stranger to you. You know nothing about him. I know that I love him. How can you know in a week? You've only met him. It doesn't take everyone seven years to find out you're in love with a girl. It's meant for me, isn't it? Alex. It's no Alex, use. don't you know what it's been for me not being able to tell you? I couldn't, not with the income I had. Then I decided I couldn't wait anymore, and I was going to tell you anyway. And you know what happened? No, I'm afraid I don't. Oh, yes, you do. That money you inherited. That money from your cousin or uncle or whoever. I don't was. see what You that... didn't think I could ask you to marry me then, did you? You don't think I could live off your money? I'm sorry, Dick. Believe me, I am. But, but it really doesn't matter now, one way or the other. Doesn't matter, does it? You can bet it matters to that Martin chap. That's what he's after. You mark my words, he's after your money. Dick, it might interest you to know that Gerald has money of his own far more than I have. And more than I have. Maybe that's the difference. Oh, I've had enough of this. I'm getting off at the next stop. Alex, please. All right, but let me tell you something. If you think I'm going to let Gerald cut me out and not do anything about it, you're very much mistaken. I'll catch up with him, do you hear? I'll catch up with him if it's the last thing I do. catch up with him if it's the last thing I do. To Alex, that threat of just one month ago was merely a heat-of-the-moment outburst of her pride. And yet as she leaned on the gate of Philomel Cottage, it kept echoing in her mind. What swept it away, what brought her back to the rustic, idyllic happiness of her life with Gerald Martin was the ring of the telephone inside the cottage. Who could be calling? Gerald. Gerald had hardly had time to get beyond the turn in the road. Except if, if something had happened to him. He'd had another attack. Maybe one of the villagers was trying to call to say that he... But she hurried then, and her hand shook a trifle. Hello? Alex? This is Dick. What? Who did you say? Dick? Why, Alex, what's the matter with your voice? I wouldn't have known it. It's Dick. Dick Wonderbutt. Oh. Well, where are you? At the Traveler's Arms. That is the right name, isn't it? Or aren't you acquainted with your village pub? You mean you're here? Yes, I'm on a holiday doing a bit of fishing. Any objection to my looking up, you two good people, this afternoon? Oh, no. No, no, you mustn't. Why, Alex. I beg your pardon. Of course, I won't bother you if you'd rather I do. I'm sorry, Dick. I I only meant that we'd be away this afternoon. Won't you come this evening? Thanks very much, but I'll probably be away by then. Depends upon whether a pal of mine turns up or not. Goodbye, Alex. Goodbye, Dick, and I hope that... Best of luck. For a long moment, Alex stood quite still, the memory of Dick's threat flooding her mind. She walked across the spacious oak-beamed living room. By the time she reached the side porch, she'd made up her mind. Much as she hated deceit, she would say nothing to Gerald of Dick's call. She stepped out into the garden, and for the second time that morning, got a surprise. There, big as life, was her gardener, busily trimming the hedge. Why, George, I thought we agreed that Saturday was your day here. I thought as how you'd be surprised, Mrs. Martin. There'll be a fair over to Squires on Saturday, and I says to myself, I says, Mr. and Mrs. Martin, they won't take it amiss if I comes for once on a Wednesday instead of a Saturday. <laughs> no, of course not, George. Then I thought, too, as I might as well see before he goes away so as to learn your wishes with the boarders. Before I go away? To London tomorrow. Me? Going to London tomorrow? Where did you hear that? Met Mr. Martin down the village yesterday. He told me you were both going away to London tomorrow. And it was uncertain when you'd be back again. I didn't... <laughs> now, don't tell me you and the master is disagreeing already. Hmm? Oh, no, naturally not. The trip just, just slipped my mind. Get on to work, George. Yes, sir. Never could understand why anybody'd want to go up to London, though. Like Mr. Raines, what used to have this house. He went up there. Not that he'd mind you. Yes. 
And after fixing up this place like he did, with taps all over everywhere, well, you're going to take a loss, I says to him, when I sees the place up for sale. Ain't everyone as well had your fed for washing themselves in every room in this house, in a manner of speaking. <laughs> but George, he says to me, I'll get every penny of 2,000 pounds for this house. And sure enough, he did. He got 3,000. 2,000. Somebody was asking was talked of at the time. Very I figure it was thought to be. No, George, you see, I gave two and, uh, well... It really was 3000 You don't tell me that Mr. Ames had the face to stand up to say 3000 brazen like in a loud voice? He didn't say it to me. He said it to my husband. I guess I'll do some speeding now. The price was 2000 As Alex strolled on across the garden, she was conscious of a thin, vague thought struggling to make itself heard. Then, abruptly, it was gone. Her eye had fallen upon a small, dark green object lying in the fur beside one of the flower beds. Gerald's diary. Her husband's pocket diary. She picked it up and opened it, scanning the entries with some amusement, once again reminded of Gerald's enslavement to time and system. <laughs> it was the entry on page 21 that brought the smile to her face. April 14th. Mary Alex at St. Peter's Church, 2.30. <laughs> and it was the entry on page 30 that took that smile away. She stared, puzzled, at the date on the page, Wednesday, May 13th. Why, uh, why, that's today. Only one thing was written there in red pencil. 6 p.m. What did it mean? What was to happen at 6 p.m.? As she stood there, that small, vague thought struggled to be heard once more. It was, yes, it was something Dick Winterfell had said. Not the threat, not that wild, silly promise of vengeance, but, but something else. And then it came. Something stranger to you. You know nothing about him. Nothing about him. It was true. What did she know about him? After all, he... This is ridiculous. Gerald, my husband. I love him. I trust him. But... Then she thought once again of that cryptic entry. 6 p.m. It was just 3 o'clock when Gerald, his arms laden with packages, walked up the garden path and came onto the side porch. Oh, Alex! The moment he opened the door into the living room, she noticed the rather odd kind of excitement about him. There you are. <laughs> Miss me, darling. Why wouldn't I? You've had time to buy out the whole village. <laughs> Only the camera's up. Now, if I don't have the best equipped dark room this side of London, it won't be my fault. If you're not careful, that dark room of yours is going to overflow the whole cellar. <laughs> oh, incidentally, here's something you've been watering the flowers with. Mm -hmm. Catch. Oh. My diary. I dropped it in the garden, did uh -huh. I? <laughs> I know all your secrets now. <laughs> not guilty. Oh, I'm not so sure. What about your assignation at 6 p.m. today? Well... Oh, that. Well, you've caught me at last. It's an assignation with a very handsome young woman, quite remarkably like you, in fact. <laughs> You're evading the issue. Not at all. Simply a reminder that I want you to help me develop some negatives this evening. At six o'clock? That's rather a peculiar time, isn't it? Peculiar? Yes, I'm usually preparing dinner at that hour. Well... No harm in delaying it a bit. We might have a sandwich or two and some coffee out on the porch. Before we walk on the negatives, you mean? Yes, that'll be pleasant, won't it? You know something, Alex? I never found anybody yet who could touch your coffee. Oh. Really? That covers Australia and Canada, oh, too. Oh, you and your mysterious past. Why do you say that? No reason, I... Oh, Gerald, I do wish I did know more about you. Alex. You're serious. I know, it's silly, but I... Darling. <laughs> I've told you all about me, my boyhood yes, but... in Sydney, my life in Canada. Yes. <laughs> I see. You mean love affairs. You women are all alike. Well, but there must have been. There must have been other women. I mean, if only I... 
Do you think it wise, Alex, this Bluebeard's chamber business? Hmm? Let's put your mind on such a subject anyway. Have you mentioned it before? I don't know, Gerald. I've, I've been rather upset all day. I imagine I can thank old George for that. With Gardner, you mean? <laughs> he had some ridiculous idea we were going away to London. He said you told him Where so. did you see him? He came to work today instead of Saturday. You fool! Why, Gerald. Kill you! And he gets his collar off. Oh, Gerald, lie down. Uh, Look, lie down here. Get some water. Here, darling. I'm all right. Oh, I'm sorry, darling, getting you all upset. That's well, because the stupid old gardener. I, I made some weak joke to him about being off to London in the morning. He must have taken it seriously, oh. else he didn't hear properly. You straightened him out, I suppose. Hardly. You know what a gossip he is. I didn't want the whole village uh, to think my husband was leaving me in the dark about his plans. Are you all right now? Uh, you... You told him we were going then. Naturally. <sighs> yes, of course. Sorry you were placed in that kind of a situation, darling. I don't suppose you ran into anybody else today. This far from the world, Gerald? It isn't very likely, is it? Gerald. No, not another word. No, not another word. You aren't yourself now. It's quite plain. I want you to have a little rest. You'll be right as rain by six o'clock. Must you do those photographs tonight? After all, you don't seem so well. Yourself. Dear, when one sets a time to do something, one should stick to it. It's the only way to get through one's work. All right, up with you upstairs to your bed now. Very well, dear. I'll be getting things arranged in the dark room. <laughs> rest was more like a nightmare. Upstairs in her room, she told herself that there was no basis, no basis whatever for her state of mind. Still, the turmoil, the doubt, the odd, unaccountable sense of dread persisted and grew. Grew until... Softly, she opened her door and stepped out upon the upstairs hallway. Quite clearly, she knew what she must do. Knew she must find some testimony to her husband's past. Something to reassure her. Something to kill that agonizing dread mounting within her. And strangely, she remembered that single locked drawer in Gerald's bureau. She tiptoed to the door at the head of the stairs, opened it, and entered her husband's room. The key, yes, the key. If only she could find the key that locked the drawer. But there was none in sight. She moved to the wardrobe, went through his coat pockets, and then there at her feet, there on the floor, she saw it. Swiftly, she stepped to the bureau, inserted the key, and it worked. Alex Martin opened the drawer, looked down upon a small packet of letters tied with a light blue ribbon. And when she saw the uppermost envelope, her face reddened with shame. Why, they're my letters. They were her own letters, love letters written to Gerald before they were married. And there was nothing else in the drawer save a roll of ancient faded newspaper clippings. Alex sighed with relief as she glanced at the top clipping. It was from an American paper, and it featured the trial of one Charles Lemaitre. Charles Lemaitre. A notorious swindler and bigamist. A skeleton had been found beneath the floor of his house, and most of the women he'd married had never been heard of again. Another of the clippings described Lemaitre's behavior in court. His interest in the cameras of the news photographers. His sensational escape from prison. Another displayed his picture, a long-bearded, scholarly-looking fellow. It reminded her of someone. But who? She couldn't tell. She glanced at the caption beneath the picture. Modern Bluebeard. Modern Bluebeard. Yes, that's what she read. Her eyes went back to the picture, and in a flash, they saw the resemblance. She ran through the other clippings. Dates had been found in the man's pocket diary. Dates, it was contended, when he had done away with his victims. He was an amateur photographer. He was from Sydney, from Canada. He was subject to heart attacks. He was, he was... Gerald! The room whirled around her. He could try to warn her. 
Dick had been near her that morning. She turned him away. She'd... It was then that she noticed the sound. She turned toward the bright new pipe in the corner running up through the room. From below, near its base, something was striking that pipe as though someone were... That was it. As though someone were digging. Lemaitre was preparing the dark room for the latest one of his victims. Six o'clock. That was the date, six o'clock. Less than an hour from now. Suddenly, all the jigsaw pieces shot into place. The money paid for the house, her money, her money only. The bond she'd entrusted for his keeping. And the... Suddenly, she heard no sound. The digging had stopped. She must have escaped from this house at once before he came up. The clip right back in the door. Don't lock it, don't bother, just get away. She rushed to the door, out to the hall, and stopped frozen. Startled me. <laughs> I was just trying to find your nail file. Were you, dear? Well, there's nothing to look so guilty about now, is it? Well, come on down. Getting late, you know. Gerald, I... Just have time to make the coffee and sandwiches. Before we do the pictures, that is. I'll be right down, darling. Oh, but I... we really mustn't delay, must we? Coming, Alex? Very well. Now, <laughs> oh, that's better. Here, let me give you a hand. Never mind, Alex. Alex, how cold you are. Cold? Yes, I am, Mark. Well, that'll soon pass away, I'm sure. Hurry along, dear. Hurry along. Yes, into the kitchen. Alex, what is the matter? Nothing. I'll be all right. The kitchen. Yes, I'll fix something in a second. You just sit here in the living room and... No, the porch. That'll be more comfortable, won't right. it? And I'll be right with you. Splendid, Alex. I'll just... <laughs> no, of course not. What, Gerald? How rotten of me not to have suggested it. Since you're feeling a bit under par, you can probably do with some help. I'll come with you. <laughs> Some way, somehow, she must get word to Dick Winterford. The fact that he might be gone by now, the memory of him telling her so, she resolutely put out of her mind. There must be no more panic. She must be in utter control of herself. Alex, carrying the coffee out to the porch, glanced at the clock upon the mantel. Ten minutes till six. Her very life hung by those next ten minutes. By her ability to think coolly and swiftly, because standing beside her was a man as determined as he was insane. A pity you're so absent. Attracted, my dear. What? Why do you say that? Well, because you are missing the loveliest sight you're ever likely to see again. Look out beyond the garden. First soft shades of twilight. Mm hmm. Twilight. Over Philomel Cottage. Now, I say, Alex, you are below par. What do you mean? First time you've ever slipped on the coffee. You must have talked in the entire canister. <laughs> I'll be more careful after this. Oh, dear. That's Alex, mine. where are you going? Nothing to get excited about, Gerald. <laughs> I forgot to order meat for tomorrow. I'm uh -huh. just going to phone the butcher. The butcher this time of evening? He generally, he generally stays late on Wednesdays. I'll be right back, darling. Don't shut the door, Alex. It keeps the insects out of the living room. You're not afraid I'm going to make love to the butcher, are you? Operator, get me the traveler's arms, please. Hurry. Hello? Traveler's arms? Mr. Winderford, please. Will you see? What? You don't know if he's still there? Well, see, won't you? It's most important. Don't let me disturb you. Well, darling, you do. I hate anyone listening when I telephone. But I do, Gerald, truly. You're quite sure you're really calling the butcher? Why, I... As a matter of fact, I am not sure. What? What I mean is... What are you talking about? I'm afraid I've got the wrong person. A perfect stranger. Don't understand. 
someone I know nothing about. You know nothing about? Then why don't you hang up? Here, was at the end of that wire? Let... Hello? Hello? Dead. All right, my girl. Let us well get started. We're late now. Late? Precisely three minutes past six. Why, Gerald, it won't be six o'clock for eight minutes. Look uh-huh. at the clock there on the mantel. I don't go by that relic. I go by my own Gerald, wristwatch. listen. Stop pacing and listen to well? me. Well? I don't feel up to it tonight. I'm upset. I'm tired. Alex, I... I promise you, you won't be a bit tired after it's over. I'm not going to wait one minute longer. I won't do it. Come along, I'm Alex. I'm with you. Come along. No. I'll carry you. No. You will, you hear? No, you will. I've got something to tell you. Something to confess. To confess? Yes, to confess. Something, something I ought to have told you before. I've had... I've had my secret past, too. Uh, <laughs> former lover, I suppose. In a way, but... But something else. You'd call it... Yes. I expect you'd call it a crime. Crime? You? Yes. I don't believe it. Yes. You better... You better sit down, Gerald. There. I, uh... I told you I'd never been married before. That wasn't entirely true. There, there was a marriage. When I was 22, he was an elderly man with a little property. I induced him to ensure his life in my favor. At one time, I was a nurse with... with access to a number of poisons. There's one poison, a white powder, it... You know something about poisons, perhaps? No, I know very little about them. This one is very much like... It's absolutely untraceable. Any doctor would give a certificate of heart failure and that... And that... <laughs> no. No, I, I can't tell you. No, no. Another time, Gerald. Another time now. I want to hear. How did you get him to take it? How did I get him to take it? Yes. I... Well, I... I always made his coffee for him. Coffee? Yes. One night, I put a pinch of this of this poison in his cup. I remember that evening, how very much like this it was, how peaceful. He, he gasped a little, tried to move from his chair, but he couldn't. Presently, he died. How much... How much was the insurance money? About 2,000 pounds. I speculated. I lost it. It was over two years before I, before I married again. He was a much younger man, quite well off. There was a will in my favor. He liked me to make his coffee, too, just as my first husband had done. I make very good coffee. Alex! It was the same, along about twilight. Alex. I remember it perfectly. How nervous and upset I'd been all day, wondering if it would turn out all right. Coffee. But it did. It was the same as the other. He just sat there in his chair, and, and he died. Our village doctor pronounced it heart failure. Alex. My husband did have a weak heart, you see, and that, and that helped a great deal. Alex, Listen! That netted me over 4,000 pounds. I didn't speculate. Coffee. That. That's why I tasted that way. You devil, you poisoned me. You poisoned me. Yes. Yes, I'll I told you. you. And already the poison is working. I'll you see? Kill you. I'll move from your chair. You're lying. You're lying. I'll kill you. You can't move. You're helpless. I'll kill you. about someone you knew nothing about. I, I certainly knew nothing about. Excuse me, sir. What is the fine constable? A man sitting in a chair. Heart trouble, it looks like, sir. And, and yes, well, sir, he's dead. Your husband, ma'am? My... You might say a... a perfect stranger. He was just... just sitting in his chair and... And presently, he died.
And so closes Philomel Cottage, Agatha Christie's story of love from a stranger, starring Geraldine Fitzgerald and Orson Welles. Tonight's tale of suspense. This is your narrator, the man in black, who conveys to you Columbia's invitation to spend this half hour in suspense with us on October 19th, one week from Tuesday, when Orson Welles will again be our star. Our next broadcast in the series will be Tuesday, October 19th, at 10 o'clock Eastern Wartime, 7 o'clock Pacific Wartime. The producer of Suspense is William Spear, who tonight also directed the broadcast, and who with Wilbur Hatch and Lucian Marowick, conductor and composer, and Harold Medford, the radio author, collaborated on tonight's Suspense. This is CBS. The Columbia Broadcasting System. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.